your PhD decreases in value, your degree decreases in value, and what becomes more important is outcome. This is a kid, he's 16. And somebody made a joke, they're like, you should hire that kid, right? And um, you know, the CEO of the company sort of was like, yeah, I probably should hire that kid. If they're worth their salt, they're gonna have to go and find the best and the brightest, and they're not gonna be interested in grades, they're gonna be interested in outcome and performance. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Ford, and today I have a wonderful guest, Dwayne Matthews, who you may know from LinkedIn. He's quite active on the platform. I want to let you know that this is um, the first podcast that we recorded from our home in Chiang Mai. We finally got here after many, many months of struggling to find airplanes and locations to live in and another airplane and visas and so forth. We're finally here. I'd like to apologize on the audio side. I'm still waiting for my equipment um, to come from Saudi Arabia. And also you'll notice by the end of the interview, there's a little bit of lag, a little bit of uh, uh, poor connection between the Zoom audio. Um, But you know, it's kind of the real world. I mean, nowadays we're starting to develop a need cognitively to fill in the blanks because we miss words um, with all these video conference sessions. So it's just real life. We no longer have anything that's uh, perfectly manicured. But more important is my conversation with Dwayne. He is one of the most interesting, deep, broad people I've spoken to in a long, long time. Uh, He also reminds me of the fact that We sometimes see people based on the brand that they've created for themselves, either as PBL specialists or as technology specialists or whatnot. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes these labels that we have, and this is probably stating the obvious, really blind us from from the human being that's behind. They're clearly their professional ambitions, their professional uh, areas of support, whatever it might be. And, And Duane is one of those folks that really is difficult to pin down because he knows so much, he thinks so much, he produces so much, and he's really an inspiring thinker, uh, an inspiring speaker, and um, he shifted much of my thinking in terms of education and in terms of the world of innovation and really what's needed beyond um, the school in order for us to learn, for the students to learn, and for the community also to make strides moving forward. But won't speak anymore. Uh, Please enjoy this conversation I had with Dwayne Matthews. So, uh, hi, Dwayne. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, wanting to get to know a little thanks bit more about me. you. You do a lot in terms of LinkedIn. You're, you're, you're very much involved in Robocon, but, but I get the feeling there's a lot more to Dwayne Matthews than, than, than so what some people might see on, uh, on, on social media. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is uh, uh, who you are, what you do, and uh, how do you try to make a difference in the world and education? Sure. So um, maybe what I'll do is I'll go back and uh, not too far back, but back just to give some context as to how I got here. Um, so I started off my career as a teacher. I taught grades three, four, five, and six, a little bit of library. Um, I taught at an inner city school here in Toronto. Inner city school is a, is a term for you know, schools that are difficult or challenging. Um, and then I left Toronto and I moved to Lima, Peru with my wife. Um, we actually needed to pay off school loans at the time and and she's significantly smarter than I am. Um, and so she decided that we should go to Lima, Peru. And so we we went to Lima, Peru and we taught at, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt for two years, did a little bit of strategic planning there, um, under Fred Wesson. 
um, great experience. And, um, you know, to your question about how I got here, I, I was on a drive going to the Amazon and um, through a pass called La Oroya. And uh, I had a chance to stop off in a mining town and have a conversation with some of the, the people that were living in the mining town. And their stories about, um, you know, sort of the ecological disaster of mining companies really touched me. And, uh, you know, the first thing being North American um, perspective, I thought, you know, we should boycott and, and that sort of stuff. And, the, you know, the, the folks there said, no, no, we, we actually need um, cleaner innovations, cleaner technologies to, to help us. And so I, I left teaching and I started a company that looked for clean technology transfer. Um, and really what I was looking for was any kind of technology that would shift the paradigm. And so this really sort of crafted um, a, a lot of, you know, my, my formative years, if you will, I was, it was just coming into 30. Um, and it really sort of crafted my view of the world. And I realized that there were really profound technologies that were going to shift a lot of things that we considered to be normal. I exited that company around 2012, um, did okay. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing Italian in the driveway, but we did all right. And I started another company, which was a disaster. It, it, it failed spectacularly. Um, and, you know, I, I really had a reckoning, a personal reckoning. And while I sat back and I, I reflected on what I actually really wanted to do, I realized that the conversion of education and fourth industrial revolution technology was going to create a massive shift. And a lot of people at the time were not necessarily seeing that shift was coming and, and how it would have a profound impact on work, profound impact on economy. Um, and so I really dove into that and, and found my passion there. Um, from there, I, I did a little bit of work at a, a, a neuroscience lab um, around executive functioning and, and using innovations to enhance executive functioning. Um, I've done uh, a lot of consulting with a, with a great company called Global DWS, which is a lot of the AI and, and that sort of stuff that um, some people see. But really, the, the place where I'm sinking my teeth is what is the impact of innovation on the future of economy, the future of work, and how does that impact um, the future of education or, or now the presence of education. So this is a little bit about me. Um, I was born in Toronto. I, I, I stayed here till I was two and then I grew up in the Caribbean in a little country called Trinidad and Tobago. I don't know if you've, you've ever heard of it. Um, beautiful place, beautiful people, awesome food. Um, and then I, I came back to Toronto. So that just gives a little bit of context as to, to who I am um, and a little bit about my journey uh, to, to help frame the conversation. Trent, I appreciate that. And I want to get to this fourth industrial revolution that you just mentioned and, and, and the connections with innovation. Uh, first thing I'd like to do, and, and I ask this of all the guests, in order to help get to a shared understanding of learning, which is a word that people use every day in education, but necessarily uh, it, it might mean different things to different people and specifically what that looks like out there. So. As such, like everybody else, and, 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 and I love getting you know, all, all the information from, from uh, people's different views, what does learning mean to you? So that's a great question. And um, you know, I, I know that um, we had a little bit of chance to, to touch on it, and I thought, gosh, that is a really profound question that I'm sure a lot of people think they understand. Um, and it challenged me to, to think a little bit about it. But for me, I think it really is about constructing meaning. 
um, and then taking that meaning to create some kind of value um, and some kind of contribution. So, you know, how do we make sense of what we see out in front of us? Um, we come out and there, there are lots of things in front of us um, and, you know, we look for patterns in those things. And as we look for patterns, we construct meaning and then we try to extrapolate the future. So to me, that's really what learning is about. It's about coming out, making sense of the world, and consistently making sense of the world, looking for patterns and seeing, you know, do those patterns help us navigate the phenomenon in front of us? And do they, do they help us to create and solve challenges that we see as we go along the journey of life? And then we're going to talk about innovation and the fourth industrial revolution. So, so thank you for that. And I think, I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of uh, the idea of making meaning of where we are brings us to this idea of fourth, um, a fourth industrial revolution because things will shift so much. But maybe our listeners might not necessarily be aware or, or, or familiar so much with what the fourth industrial revolution is. So, so can you give us a little bit of context around that, and then how innovation allows us to, to, to bridge where we are now or, or where we're developing into this fourth industrial revolution. Sure. And, and so, you know, I, I mean, I, I could talk about it from a theoretical perspective, um, you know, in terms of the industrial revolutions that we've had in the past, you know, the steam engine, electricity, computers, um, that sort of stuff. But I think what is sort of helpful is to, to create some form of analogy um, that helps to give positioning, right? So the analogy that I like to use is one of the most profound pieces of technology um, that we have is, um, for context of our conversation, is 600-year-old technology um, that we decided about 150 years ago to organize into a strategy of stage gates. And that technology is called a printed book. And so we use that technology. And, and what's interesting about the printed book is that the printed book um, between the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press and the first Gutenberg Bible is probably about 150 years. And why is that important? Well, that's important because the person or people that were responsible for that printing press um, you know, had long died by the time the first book came about. So the world, seemed very, very stable. Across the arc of history, we can see that there's innovation happening, but the world seemed reasonably stable. Um, here we are with uh, this really crazy thing called a microchip. And as we get them to go smaller and we get these transistors to go smaller, um, they allow for massive amounts of information to be stored and they allow for massive amount of computing power. And that starts to create all kinds of, of different realities. And as those things converge, um, they have a pretty profound effect. So let me go back to the book for a second. Um, once upon a time, 98% of the population were farmers. And so now about 2% of the population are farmers. And a big part of that is because of the printed book. We sort of moved from farming and we realized that we could store, you know, people's imagination across space and time, we could put all those things together and we could start to create all kinds of solutions and all kinds of ideas based on a sort of piggybacking over the stored information over time. So that stored information is really profound. Um, and that put us even at 2% of the population farming, uh, you know, we, we thought we'd starve to death and we, we haven't really done that. Um, you know, our problem on the planet is not that there's not enough food. Our problem on the planet is that we don't have a 
mechanism or methodology to distribute the food, right? And so, so that was very, very profound. And that had to do a lot with information. And so with the fourth industrial revolution, we see that there's a number of components around information, the storage information, and the amount of information that we can create grows exponentially because of this computing power. And that allows us to do many different things. It allows us to do things like you know, 3D print DNA. It allows us to do things like look at our technologies. It allows us to do things like artificial intelligence. Um, it allows us to do things like biotechnology. And so as all these exponential technologies converge at once, all connected to the idea of computer processing um, and computer storage, which doubles every 18 to 24 months, uh, it's a profound impact. If you can think of the impact that one technology, the printed book, had on civilization, if you could think of the impact of the book plus electricity, um, that kind of impact. Now, if you can think about six of those um, happening every 18 to 24 months, doubling every 18 to 24 months, um, it starts to become really profound. And so once that pressure is, is applied to society around us, we start to get a sense of speed. And that speed is disorienting because we historically we've gone, remember I talked about the fact that it's 150 years from printing press to book. So we, we've gone 150 years and things being reasonably the same, right? Um, the difference between my grandmother's life and my mother's life is negligible. Um, but the difference between my son, who is now 10, and my daughter, who is now three, in terms of computer processing power is, is quite profound. Um, you know, with my son's childhood, most of his pictures are stuck on a BlackBerry somewhere, and we don't know how to get into it. It's pretty grainy. It's one megapixel, right? My daughter, who's three, we, we probably have about 10,000 photos that we've forgotten that we took, and we took those last week, right? So it's, it's, it's quite profound um, what what is possible. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Robocon and I, I was sort of blown away at, you know, we had entries from all over the world. Um, you know, people from all corners of the planet that are able to, to participate in, in Robocon, um, which is, which is quite profound really. It, you know, when I was 15 or 16, gosh, when I was like going into university, that would have been absolutely impossible. This conversation would have been impossible um, 15 years ago, right? And so, so here we are now and we can see all of these things sort of happening um, and it's accelerating. And so, you know, I think COVID-19 has come and sort of ripped off the Band-Aid and uh, we're, we're sort of forced to see um, a lot of the acceleration and a, a lot of the challenges that we, we need to solve as a result. So you mentioned learning is creating meaning out of, out of new contexts. How are we going to create meaning out of some of the new tools that we have, the new context that we have, using the processing power that you mentioned, different aspects of, of, uh, of, of information, the acceleration of, of uh, not necessarily knowledge, but, but certainly um, the ability to access knowledge. How does that shift the way learners of all ages are able to um, uh, exist in a world and make meaning out of their world? How are they going to bring in those tools to create as opposed to consume? What, what are the opportunities you see? 
Yeah, no, so, so okay, I, I think I understand your question. And if, if I go in the wrong way, um, then put me back on rails and bring me back. But in the, so let's go back to the book, right? In the past, if we think of the book as the innovation, and so the book was such a profound innovation that as a society, we decided, you know what, we're going to create really a factory-like process, and we're going to discriminate um, against certain skill sets or the ability to, to harness certain skill sets, right? So memory and recall um, is, is going to be our, our, our big thing that we're going to work on, and that's going to give us a signal as to where people fit in, in our, in our factory-like society. Um, and so if you think about that, um, well, why is that? And so, well, that's because if I have a book, um, if I have 10,000 books at my house, I can't walk with 10,000 books. So I have to attempt to remember and make connections um, on those 10,000 books. And I have to travel with that here. And so at the end of 192 days, um, I'm going through school with the same people in my same age group. And at, there's some kind of an assessment that opens a gate and allows me to go through to the next stage. And eventually, um, you know, the, we start to have a diminishing return on that, right? So if you think of post-secondary, think of university, the diminishing return, we're probably about 35% on average, um, give or take the country that you're in. Um, Ontario, where I am, is a little bit different. We, we have a, a pretty high post-secondary educating ranking, but that's because we have a, a very innovative and aggressive immigration system. Um, but we're probably about the same thing, probably about 35%. And so you know, what we have is, is a rest um, of people are, are not as trained as, as, as highly, right? And so, you know, the people that go on to post-secondary, we call those smart people. Um, and, and they kind of give the direction as to, as to what we all do. Um, what we find with these new innovations is we're able to open up gates and more people have the potential to access right? Because with, with this, I don't have to remember everything. Um, you know, once I have an internet connection, I don't have to remember everything. My, my ability to synthesize, ask questions, um, and to, to formulate desired outcomes becomes just as powerful as my ability to remember and to recall. And, you know, we start to see examples of that um, popping up all over the world, right? Like we, we start to see, um, you know, people that are very, very good at curating teams together that can amplify themselves across different jurisdictions. Um, you know, we start to see companies that can work 24 hours by leveraging time zones. Um, we start to see people being able to make connections that they couldn't make before. And so that's really, really profound. Another thing is that in the past, when I grew up in the West Indies, I only had access to the teachers that I had. And those teachers have a, a profound bias, right? So I mentioned before that I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. And one of the things that um, you know my family and my family's friends pride themselves on is the amount of people in the family or in our sphere that are post-secondary educated um, or have you know PhDs. And, and so I asked a question, my question was, you know, here we are in the coronavirus and we don't have 
any company trying to find a vaccine for Trinidad and Tobago. So we, we actually have to wait. We have to roll the dice and wait. We have to hope that the countries out there, um, A, make enough vaccines and after they've convinced everybody to take their vaccines that they sent some our way. Um, and so, well, why is that? Well, because the professors and teachers on our island, the direction of our education system, while we created a lot of PhDs, um, it didn't go into the direction of creating pharmaceutical companies. And, and the reason why I use Trinidad and Tobago um, it's because it's kind of unique. Trinidad and Tobago is once upon a time was one of the largest producers of natural gas in the world. Um, we're part of the Orinoco Formation, which is the same formation that gives Venezuela its oil. Um, we have a ton. And so here we are, a country of 1.3 million with a massive amount of natural gas, a massive amount of oil, but we don't have a pharmaceutical company. So it's not the money. It's not the brain power. It's the direction of our education system. Um, at the time. And so what, what these innovations allow us to do is it allows us to reach out and touch people from all over the world. It allows us to grab ideas from all over the world. It allows us to see. And we're just getting started with that, right? Like, you know, if you look at the hubs in terms of the connectivity on the internet, it, it's still pretty regional, right? Um, we're just getting started on how to connect, right? But it's, it's not a crazy idea for a student in my wife's class to have a project with a student in you know, a school where you are, right? It doesn't happen often, but conceivably, it's not that hard at all. I mean, uh, we could do it tomorrow. Um, we could do it you know, for students across four different continents um, and, and, and manage that reasonably fine once they're, they're past 11 or 12, right? So you, you have this opportunity to, to get to more and to see more. And I think you also have the opportunity for more people to participate because the notion of having to remember everything um, is, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it becomes a commodity, right? So, you know, intelligence becomes a commodity. Your, your MBA um, decreases in value. Your PhD decreases in value. Your degree decreases in value. Um, and what becomes more important is outcome. Right. So a company is going to say, can you get me results to do this? Or if you're an entrepreneur, can you make this work? Um, and, and how do you do that? Right. So the, the problem solving ability, the ability to pull on resources, to make connections, to have those outcomes starts to increase in value. And that gives more access. When I was a child, if you weren't a Ph.D. or you didn't have a master's degree, it doesn't really matter how smart you were. You couldn't have a conversation with anybody. Um, I think in the next five years, you're going to see lots of conversations where large companies will have conversations with grade 11s. We saw some, you know, there's a one child that had an idea just today um, with RoboCon. And, you know, we, we all sort of sat back and we're like, this is a kid. He's 16. And somebody made a joke. They're like, you should hire that kid, right? And, um, you know, the CEO of the company sort of was like, 
yeah, I probably should hire that kid. And what you're saying is so much that that touches on on some of the things that I've been thinking about and some things I've been talking to my wife, Charlotte, and that's the fact that um, assessment is is what drives a lot of schools. Have they met these standardized test scores? Have they um, written a text that has, you know, such and such number of, uh, of, of linking words and so forth? And so bringing it back to the book, I find fascinating as well, because there's also this idea that we, we measure kids' reading ability by having them, you know, decode and, and, and pronounce the word uh, uh, properly and then ask some usually low-level questions that maybe even multiple choice. But really, when you think about it, none of that really matters because you can understand a text, you can be well-versed in all of Shakespeare. If you don't do anything with those ideas, if you don't take the reading, think about it, and then produce something, outcome or impact, none of that's going to make a difference. Uh, my my PhD, I, I, if more than two people read it outside of my uh, of my um, uh, you know committee, I'd be surprised. Fantastic, I loved it, but it has had no impact really because so esoteric, and that's okay. But I have to, to assume that it doesn't mean anything. Um, so I guess what I'm what I'm interested in in getting more of your views and and, and like the 16 year old at Robocon is how does the school experience change to think about impacts to think about the difference that kids can make in the world rather than assessing them on this memorization. What, what needs to happen for people to realize it's about what kids do inside and outside the classroom that distinguishes them, not whether or not they can decode a text. Yeah. So, so great, great question. So here are two ideas. Um, here are two ideas. So, you know, you mentioned, you go, I have a PhD and, you know, it, it, it hasn't had any impact. Well, it does have an impact because it sends a signal, right? Um, you know, I'm speaking to you at 1030 at night and I'm sure that somewhere in my unconscious bias, the fact that you had a PhD, um, you know, helped me along that decision, right? Um, you know, had you been a, a grade 11 student that said, hey, I want to have a conversation with 1030 at night. I might have just blanketly said no, um, you know, rightfully or wrongfully so, right? And so, so why is that? Well, your PhD is a signal, right? There's, there's a signal that it sends about you, um, and it sends that signal about, you know, your capacity to focus and your capacity to, to persevere. Um, and these are qualities that I've, I've learned to, to think that are good. And so, you know, because I hold them in such high esteem, that signal means something. And so does a degree, um, so does a diploma, so does an international school. Um, you know, if I say to somebody, I went to Harvard University or I went to the University of Windsor, um, immediately Harvard University as a, sing as a signal has a, a, a bigger impact to the person. And I, I might've had horrible teachers at Harvard because Harvard is really great at research. My teachers might've been, they might've been absent. They might've all been writing books. Um, and the teaching might not have been as good. My teaching at the University of Windsor might've been very personal, very one-to-one, -one, very, um, you know, sort of experiential, but it doesn't really matter because of the signal. So I think what the key is signal. So a lot of the conversations that we have around education, um, you'll find people are really, really open to, to doing all kinds of experimental stuff, K to six, right? People will do, you know, sit in circles. You guys want to do mindfulness. 
Um, you know, we're going to take away subjects. We're going to do all these things. And typically, as it gets to grade nine and starts going on to grade 12, the conversation starts to become, well, we have to get into post-secondary education. So it slowly but surely starts to go back to sort of what we all remember um, in one way, shape, or form. And so I think what has to change? And, and a big part of that is, is because of semiotics and narratology, where, where we have a story that runs in our mind. Um, and that story for me is very much, you know, you go to school, you got a degree, you get a good job, you have a good job, maybe you have a vacation, some kind, people pay you, um, you know, you get a house and, and that's a great life. And my parents can say, you know, Dwayne did well. Um, that's sort of the story. But now we start realizing, well, the end of that story starts to change. So I think what has to happen is the end piece has to change. Not necessarily the assessment, but where kids go. So right now, university is a choke point, right? Everybody at, a, at an international private school, everybody that's at a, at a good school is trying to get to some sort of post-secondary education. And the reason that they're trying to do that is because that theoretically gives the highest probability of success in life because it delivers the signal. Right, but I think as those endpoints start to change, um, we'll start to see changes. So you see, Google showed up a couple of weeks ago and said three hundred dollars um, gets you a six-month certificate, and we're going to hire people out of that six-month certificate and start them at ninety-two thousand dollars U.S. a year. Well, a lot of students are going to sit up and think, hmm. You know, how does that sound? You know, it, it may not be a degree from Princeton, but my mom sure would be happy if I started working at Google, right? That's a great, my other employers would be happy. When I go tell people, you know, I work at Google, um, people look at you a bit differently, right? I don't know if you've ever been to Google. I've been there and, you know, immediately 20 minutes in, I was like, I go, I want to work here. I go, I love everybody. You guys all seem so super smart and everybody, you know, talks really nice, um, loved it. And so, here comes Google. Here comes Disney. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw Disney has a, uh, a management course on business management a la Disney. Well, who's not going to want to say, you know, I have about five or six certificates from Disney that cost me maybe $1,500 versus $100,000, right? So all of a sudden, you know, Disney may not replace Harvard, but it replaces a lot of universities that are next tier down. Um, Google may not replace Princeton, but it replaces a lot of universities that are not an, an, another tier down. And so I think this signal, you'll start to see because of this fourth industrial revolution, there's going to be a huge skills gap and smart companies are going to realize that we're going to have to go back down into high school um, and start drafting these kids out of high school really early um, to hold on to our talent. And I think that moment is, is here. 2020 is the, the first shot of that moment. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Facebook doesn't enter before the next two years. I wouldn't be surprised if Apple doesn't enter in the next two years. I, I think banks, um, just big, large corporations, the Procter & Gamble's of the world, if, if every company is now a, a data company that requires a massive amount of data technicians and you know, cybersecurity technicians and, and people that can create really fast ideas with all this computing power, all this data that's just sitting, um, you know, they're going to, if they're worth their salt, they're going to have to go and find the best and the brightest. 
And they're not going to be interested in grades. They're going to be interested in outcome and performance. So they're really going to be looking at a different kind of portfolio um, to, 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 to give those signals. So I think, I think that moment's here. But we still need to think about how the school structurally, institutionally, systemically allows for the opportunities to build those portfolios. There doesn't seem to necessarily be a platform that is um, uh, necessarily suited you know, to, to bring everything together. It's still a little bit disparate, but more to the point, some of the, and I'm using inverted commas here, smartest kids, most able kids, are, are ground down with AP, with uh, IB, with all, all these exam-driven uh, outcomes that they often don't have time in the day to write their own story outside of this system where they can shine, where they can do things that, that are off, off script. So how do we work in a system where you know, the, the kids who are supposedly and, and again, inverted commas, more able are, are so driven by, by these exams that they don't feel that they can invest time in, in, in other things because they might not get the grade in the exam because we're losing a lot of opportunity. So that's, that's a great question. And um, so I, I think what you're going to find happening is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a book, um, there's an author that I love and he, he passed away earlier this year. His name is Clayton Christensen. And he really sort of coined a disruptive innovation. Um, and I often joke that he probably held the universe together because it, it was maybe the weekend after he passed. Him and Kobe Bryant passed on the same weekend. And it, it seemed that the whole world started to fall apart at that point. So I, I go, I don't know, maybe, maybe he had an Atlas-like ability. But, um, you know, he talks a lot about the disruption of an industry. And so he talks a lot about the incumbent um, being very stable and being very disruptive resistant. So typically what you'll find happening is the incumbent will find a new technology and attempt to substitute that new technology for something else, for a, you know, a minor sort of incremental advancement, right? So, uh, you know, a, a perfect example of that, you know, and my apologies to anybody at Google, but Google Classroom is a great example of that. Right. It, it, it gives a minor incremental, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's digital paper um, inside of digital files in a, in, a, in a kind of an organizational system that looks very much like school. Um, you know, it's on a Chromebook and, you know, but it, it's still, it's still the same thing. You're still handing in papers, to, you know, like even the conversation of synchronous learning, um, you know, a la Zoom, right. It's, it's still sage on the stage. Um, everybody kind of keep your mics muted until I say, um, and maybe there's a cahoot at the end where I ask you some questions, right? Which is essentially, it's the same thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, think, I think the disruption will come in a few ways. A, it will come in little experiments that start off outside of the system. Um, and those experiments will seem sort of nuisances to the so you you see some of those nuisances schoolers you know more self-respecting schools don't really have a lot of time for homeschoolers and you know the, the parents that do that they're like well good riddance to those parents you know they, they, they didn't like how our thing was and we don't really want to deal with them anyway so we're sort of glad to outsource them to wherever it is that they're going um and homeschool i, I was actually amazed as to how much it's grown um, globally, 
um, you'll start to see other types of experiments, right? Um, you know, I had a conversation with the folks at the Green School, and it's kind of a cool little experiment. Um, there's a school in, um, I want to say the Netherlands, right? Kind of interesting experiment there as well, right? Where it's just sort of like, you know, what do you feel like doing today? Um, so you start to see these little experiments coming around. I mean, what I started, the you know, the Tomorrow Now Learning Labs is really, it's it's a little experiment, right? Like it's not a big, not a big entity at all, right? Like it's a, it's a small little experiment that, you know, started with myself and my son and some ideas that I had written down after, you know, becoming really enthralled with Jean Piaget and thinking about Piaget and technology. Um, and so you'll start seeing these little experiments. It'll seem kind of on the fringe. Um, and the system will say, you know, either A, I'm not super interested in any of that. And it's dealing with stuff that I don't want to deal with anyway, um, because here, this is what we do. Uh, and, you know, the analogies that I can think of is, you know, we, we had a great company here in, in Canada called RIM, BlackBerry. And, you know, they, they sort of invented the smartphone. There's, there's no more RIM, right? Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a great, great company that I remember when I was younger and dating my wife that, you know, we'd make it a blockbuster night. Um, you know, there's no more blockbuster rental movies, right? Like I remember somebody coming and saying, you know, there's this thing called Netflix. Where are you? I'm like, so why would anybody want to do that? It seems like such a hassle. I much prefer going to blockbuster. Um, so what you find happening is the innovations will struggle on the inside of an incumbent structure unless that incumbent structure makes a definite decision to cannibalize itself. And that's a very tricky thing, A, to do because the, the structure is almost like a life form, right? It wants to live. And to cannibalize itself is, is kind of hard. So if you, you know, there are a few companies that have done it really well. Um, Apple is probably the best example right? It's the poster child of, you know, Apple started out as a computer company and is now a phone company, which is an app company that, you know, and Tim Cook said that the most important thing for us is mixed reality. They don't even have a mixed reality product yet. And he said, that's the most important thing. So they're already moving to watches and, you know, the phones and that'll connect to the glasses. And soon we're going to see something quite profound um, in, in terms of what they do. Um, you know, so when you think of the case, um, one of the companies here excited about is a company called Edwin. Is you know the the child, the disruptive child of a company called Nelson. Nelson's about 106 years old, and they've created this digital learning ecosystem that they've kind of taken all of their their textbooks and their content. And they put it into these really cool UIs and playlists, and they're actually attempting to eat themselves from the inside out. And so that so that's what I think is is going to happen. I think um, you know the leaders that are that are bold enough to do that only do that when they have the signal. And so that signal is is going to be a signal. And so they what they may do is they may have a small option. So they may say you know you have IB or you have Learning Lab. Right. And the learning lab is kind of directly connected to the folks at Google and the folks at Disney and about whatever big company that you have. And we have people from those companies that come and sort of groom everybody. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a farm team. 
development. And parents may say, you know, I think the same way with IB many, many years ago. So yeah, no, I think this might be for my my child. They're they're super creative. They love playing video games, love designing video games. They don't get a chance to do that. So maybe I will stick them over here. Um, they love being creative and maybe I will stick them over here. Um, so I think you'll start to see that. My vision, you'll see innovative labs or innovative lab models pop up inside of more established schools as an option, and that will grow. Um, that's the only way that I see it. But trying to say, you know, hey, we need to change the incumbent structure today. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. And I, I think it's good that it doesn't, because if you do that, um, if you're unable to replace the, the stable structure with something that's equally as stable, you have chaos. So it needs to start with something small that sort of grows and proves itself and eventually disrupts and, and consumes what was. And, and shows a track record and also seeps down into the, you know, the, the early years simply because the early years models really is a kind of learning lab if, if they're, you know, taking the Reggio uh, approach to it. But that moving up, moving down, just, just having more of a connection because it is very hard to ask a high school kid who has been doing worksheets for eight years uh, to suddenly become creative and innovative. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me give you an example of something that I've seen. And it, 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 this is a, a good example of, of a disruptive model that's not to scale. Um, and it's kind of like a canary in the coal mine. So there's a, there's a great organization that came out of Toronto called the Knowledge Society. And they take gifted kids, right? So they don't take the vast majority. They take kids that, you know, you probably you know, throw them in a desert somewhere and they'd be successful. Um, but they take these gifted kids and they start to train them to be impactful entrepreneurial leaders. And, you know, I, I can't, I'd be blind if I knew exactly how long the organization's been around, but it, it can't be more than five years. And in that short space of time, you see these kids on stage with the CEO of Microsoft. You see them on stage with the CEO of Apple. You see them with, you know, senior leaders and executives um, here in Toronto. Um, they're, uh, they all start their own businesses and companies, whether they fail or not. Uh, you know, and they, they start at 13, right? And so, you know, I've been to countless conferences and, you know, here's this 14-year-old kid up on stage presenting, um, you know, for money, right? <laughs> like, and, and here they are, they have... Uh, you know, they have a, the, the one thing I'm thinking regenerative medicine at one of our, our, our hospitals, our, our hospital networks. And, you know, one of the kids has a company in there that's working on real problems and they're like 16, right? And so there is not an executive leader in the city that would not say, I won't let that kid go to school. I'll hire them and I'll pay for the university so they'll have some loyalty to us and our company. So one of the kids is 16 and works in one of the major banks doing um, analytics while, right? And so, you know, it's a trickle, difficult proposition to say, are you gonna do IB or are you gonna continue at 18 with this $120,000 job with the CEO who's gonna pay for your child's nano credentials or micro credentials or MBA or whatever it is that you need? Um, you know, and what kind of brand cachet do you have, even if you didn't finish, right? Um, so, so that's a canary in the coal 
put it out with one after school program that's on Sunday. I think the vacations across and they're expanding fast and they've now gone from really, really gifted to really, really high marks, right? So you can see that here's the spread of, uh, of an idea and it has a signal and the, the other end to that signal, the employment, the business, the venture capital are all saying, if this person went to TKS, I'd put some money on them, right? I, I, I would give them a job, I'd invest. And so those kinds of signals are coming. I mean, they're already here. Listen, Dwayne, uh, thanks so much. I, I just want to give you opportunity maybe to, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what you're up to, what's next for you, um, what's some of the things that you're excited about and, uh, and, and what's on your path moving forward. So the biggest thing for me right now, the exciting for me is the tomorrow now, what we're looking at, like, is looking at, you know, what if I took and smushed it together with innovation? Um, what would happen? Uh, look at, you know, um, and essential learning, personalized learning, we scale that, we create these labs. So I think, you know, that's, most exciting for me, creating these little experiments inside of more established uh, organizations. So how do we take these models and put them into, whether it be public schools, put them, at, whether it be private schools. Um, I've had a conversation with the Prime Minister of Canada, you know, had conversations with executives at larger companies thinking about how and where do you fit these, these things in. Looking at a demonstration, um, you know, it, it may be unique to some, um, in other places, it's not unique at all. There are experiments like these. And when I talk about them, I, I see people that reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm working on something that sounds really similar. And so we can make these connections, that kind of a movement and to create these connections, not just for the adults, but also for the kids, uh, I think is, uh, is really exciting. So that's, that's, you know, really, um, what, what gets me up every day and what I think about every day. Um, and, you know, enhancing this digital learning system, learning ecosystem, and thinking about how do we bring really cool, how do we know what we want to do, and then go bring really cool innovations around that, which is very different than let's lead with technology first and see where it goes. I really like to think about what are we trying to get done, and then what technology can we go get? Um, you know, the last thing that I would leave with is that, um, you know, the future of education is not technology-led. The future of education is human-led, purpose-driven, and technology-augmented. Um, and technology is it's just a hammer. Dwayne, I, I wish we could talk like for hours. This is fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning so much. There's so much that's resonating here that's energizing me, uh, that's nourishing me. And I want to thank you because you've, you've like, you know, kind of jump-started me in my day. And, and, um, and, and thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this um, and, and your time. I, I I, I appreciate you for having me on here and, and giving me the space to share. And I, I appreciate the fascinating, you know, really thought-provoking conversations. Um, it's, it's coming up on 11 o'clock at night, and you've, you've probably ruined my sleep and my wife's sleep at least for another three hours because we're now going gonna to be talking about this for the rest of the night. So thank you as well. And let's, let's stay connected. Um, I love the work that you and your wife do. I, I love reading up on, on your blog, and I think you guys have fantastic posts. So let's stay connected and, and let's stay energized. Thank you very much. 
That was my conversation with Dwayne Matthews. You are listening to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. We will have another episode coming up quite shortly with my good friend Mark Barnett, who is also a man of many talents, and specifically in terms of his understanding of project-based learning, in terms of technology, in terms of really breaking the rules around the institutions of learning. So look for that podcast to come up soon. And in the meantime, I'd like to thank you for listening. And uh, please visit our blog on www.coconut-thinking.design. And looking forward to connecting with you soon on LinkedIn or other platforms. And in the meantime, have a good rest of October. And we will be back very soon.